Well, it is good to be here with you again, and I certainly uh, thank uh, Kevin Lee for the fine uh, sermonette that he brought, and he certainly has added a great deal if we had to pay him to come in and live here and and, uh, give him all the health benefits and all the other benefits, why it would be much more expensive. So he saved us a lot of money, and we're very grateful for his service. He did that for a year or two for nothing, I think, the first year or two or whatever, and we give him a little bit once in a while. Thank you, offering, to Kevin Lee. (laughs) But uh, anyway, we're very grateful for his help. Has a wonderful voice, as you know, and is a very fine announcer for us. I want to ask you all again, uh, very urgently, brethren, please pray for the semi-annual letter. I made a special issue of that last week in the announcements, but I know how we forget. That letter has just been mailed out. The last batch, I think, Mr. Crockett said, was mailed out yesterday afternoon. Altogether, about 400,000 of these letters are going out around the world, and it can be, if we pray, the biggest thing we've ever done in the sense of reaching out and telling people in the world, non-church members, about the church and what the church is like. We've never done that, especially when they write in for the DVD, you know, and get that later. So if we pray fervently that God will bless the letter and then pray later that God will bless the DVD as it gets out and open their mind, we may have a tremendous response. And don't, let's not think it's going to come next week because next week the, the letters will just begin to arrive. It'll take two or three weeks for them to all to get there and then two or three weeks for them to get the DVD back. And so it may be six to 12 weeks before we begin to hear much response, you see, as far as new people coming along or acting or whatever. But we certainly want to pray. As I say, that's the biggest single thing we've ever done. I think most of us, brethren, do read the news, so I'm not going to go through a lot of that with this. It's usually bad news in the world because this world is going down very, very rapidly. And I think most of you realize, I hope you all do, that this world and the governments of this world, virtually all of them, are in a mess. Our government has indebted our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, and they're digging a huge hole from which we will never recover. Just spending money, spending money, printing money out of nothing. They don't have more productivity to back up the money they're printing. They don't have any more gold. They don't have any more foreign exchange. They're just printing monopoly money. And I'm not making that up. I read the Wall Street Journal and a number of financial letters, and and I get clippings from all over. The economists basically understand that. There's very little disagreement on that. It's really awful. And we're in terrible trouble in many other ways as well in our government. Constant government corruption, lying, cheating is being discovered. And I could read you a whole series of quotes from the British press telling about what's going on over there. And they are really disgusted with all the lying and cheating going on over there. Then we have the Middle East with terrible dictators there oppressing the people, killing women for doing nothing whipping them and imprisoning them just for letting their ankles show, just ridiculous things, dictators. All through Africa you have terrible governments and dictators. This Mugabe has oppressed his people, virtually raped the whole nation, and they're starving to death. What used to be the breadbasket of Africa is a nation now starving itself to death because of this dictator. And all through Africa you find these terrible governments. You find them, as I say, through the Middle East. You find them in South America with Chavez and these other dictators down there. And out in in, uh, Asia, of course, you find the same thing. And many of the different nations that are about to blow each other up, 
The latest example is North Korea, which just this morning was reported as threatening us if we try to interdict their ships and search them to see if they have things that could be used for atomic weapons. They say they will attack us and fight us. It's war. So we may be at war with North Korea within another few days. I don't think we will. I think they're bluffing, but we don't know that. They have a madman at the helm. We do know that. And this this world is upset more than it ever has been. It's in desperate need of right government. But what is the gospel? Think about it. We preach the gospel. When I was in the Methodist church, they talk about the precious gospel, the precious gospel. And, of course, it was just talking about uh, little Lord Jesus, away in a manger, silent night, holy night, Easter eggs, Santa Claus coming down the chimney and all that stuff. They never, ever talked in the 19 years I attended about Christ coming back to this earth and setting up a kingdom or a government on this earth. And most of our Protestant members that I've ever talked to say the same thing. And the Catholics, of course, the same thing. They don't believe in that aspect of the gospel at all. But the wonderful good news is there is going to be the times of restoration of all things. And the Apostle Peter was inspired to tell us about that in Acts chapter 3 and verse 21. He said the times of restoration, the restoring of all things is coming when Christ comes back to this earth. God's government is going to be restored to this earth and it's going to be wonderful. It really is. And we need to realize That's a vital part of the gospel. This world desperately needs right government. And brethren, we all need to realize that we were called to be part of the solution to the problems of this world and its governments. That's why you and I are called now. Mr. Armstrong used to say that was one of the two big reasons, and it certainly is. You're called not just for personal salvation, but you're called to be part of the government of God in a few years to help straighten out the problems on this earth. And you're also called to help do the work of God now as well. But this is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why you are called now. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 6. It's a classic verse I've often used, but I don't want to leave it out in this particular sermon. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So remember, brethren, as I preach, this is New Testament stuff. Some newer brethren or outsiders might say, Oh, you people just preach from the Old Testament. Well, what did Christ preach from? (laughs) Most of you know. He preached from the Old Testament constantly. That's what Peter preached from. Paul preached from constantly quoting the Old Testament. Literally hundreds of verses in the New Testament are either a direct quote or a paraphrase from the Old Testament, as we call it, because it's all part of the Word of God. But in the New Testament, the apostle of the Gentiles tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and beginning verse 1, Dare any of you having a matter against another. So think about that. How dare you go down the street to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? The saints, why would you go to law before the saints? Well, because we're called right now to learn to govern. And we ought to be practicing God's government within the church. Some church fellowships don't do that. They just vote and politic and they don't have any real government of God in the way the Bible describes it at all. But God wants us to practice the right form of church government so we're able to administer that very kind of government in a few years. And it's not going to be 30 or 60 years. It'll probably be more like 
you know, 10 or 15 years. But we can't set dates. We don't know. How dare you go to law before the unrighteous? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Again, we in the church have heard that, and I think that just kind of rolls off of us sometime. We've been so steeped in this world, a lot of us grew up in the Protestant world, as I did, and you just hear about little Lord Jesus and be good and all that. It's good to be good, but you better be good God's way and not just in a general way. But at any rate, he tells us we're preparing to judge or to rule the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? The world is going to be ruled by you or judged by you. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? The powerful spirit beings in a few years are going to be judged by us. Now, the Greek word translated from various forms of anacrino, diacrino, the basic, it means simply to decide between, and it can mean to manage. I think in this case it probably means manage from the context. I taught the epistles of Paul class for about 30 years and I don't think we're going to sit up going over books to see what happens to the angels, but we're going to manage them. They are now helping us, and we will later manage them more directly, of course, once we're in God's kingdom. But we're judging, we're guiding them, we're ruling them. How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church... Or why, as some translations have it, that's implied here, why would you appoint or why would you go to some worldly court? Why would you go to those who are not even in the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? Don't you have any elders, any pastors, any even leading men that can help judge situations from time to time? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you to go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be defrauded? So he's telling them they'd better learn to to go to law or to go to a judgment for a judgment in God's church because the church is part of the way that we're trained. It's part of the proving ground to teach us how to judge. Mr. Lindley sang that very beautiful song, did very well, I'll Walk With God. And that's one of my favorite songs in all the world, as my wife knows and many of my friends. I love that song. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's a wonderful song. But, you know, I'm just saying one aspect of it. I can hear that song and be sentimental and think it a general way. I'll walk with God and have these sentimental things. Just put your hand in God's hand and all those things you need to do. I'm going to give you a little bit more of a practical sermon today. You have to walk by, with God by doing certain things. And you walk with God on over into God's kingdom, not to float around on a pink cloud, but to do certain things, real things. And you need to get ready, you women as well as men, because you won't, you won't be women in a few years. I'm sorry about that. I love our beautiful women, but they won't be women very much longer. <laughs> They're going to be gone. <laughs> And us men, we won't be men either in the same way we are today. And we will be spirit beings. And our same personality and general appearance will be the same. We have every reason to know. But we will not be men and women per se the way we are today. So we're all going to be rulers. 
And you women will have stronger bodies. It'll be a spirit body where you could call the fire down from heaven. You can appear or disappear. You could make your voice roll across the earth like rolling thunder, just like Jesus Christ's did, voice did and has. You can. You're going to be somewhat different <laughs> and be able to rule. Some women in the church have told me in the time past when I preached about all of us becoming kings and priests, well, I really don't want to be a king and be mean and fight wars. Well, no, you won't be a woman in the first place. You'll be a spirit being. But as I'm going to show you, most of it won't be fighting and crushing people. At the beginning, there'll be quite a bit of that, probably guided by Christ and his angels. But as the millennium gets going, the big job will be helping people, teaching people, serving people, encouraging people, blessing people, and wiping away tears from their eyes. And women are very good at that. You need to have a great deal of empathy and love and concern. And that's one of the biggest single qualities of a right king, and we've all got to work on that and build that into our lives. Back in Revelation, I'll give a couple of scriptures here that you're familiar with, but in case we have newer ones that remind us of the basic calling that God says over and over. Revelation 2. Turn to Revelation 2 and verse 26. Here is Jesus Christ speaking in the first person. And he who overcomes, you have to, through God's Spirit within you, overcome your human nature, your vanity and jealousy and lust and greed and Satan the devil and this world. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, not just he who gets sentimental about Jesus, but keeps Christ's works, does his work in his whole way of life. To him, I will give power. You won't just float around on a cloud doing nothing. You'll have power over the nations, plural. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken in pieces, as I also received from my father. As I've told you, when I first used to hear about this ruling with a rod of iron, I thought, boy, it's just maybe it's, you know, it kind of gave the feeling we're there to kind of crush people, and why would we have to do that? And yet, if you read about Mugabe, and if you read about these other African dictators, if you read about Kim Il-sung, or whatever his name is in North Korea, and you read out uh, about Amenajab over in uh, Iran, and you read about men in the past like Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and Joseph Stalin and all the others, they're not going to listen to nice, sweet talk. They're going to have to be shaken like a rag doll before they wake up and are willing to do what God says. So he will have to rule them with a rod of iron at first until they repent or are executed, and some will be executed, and then the rest of the world will start to listen. And then it will be more a matter of teaching and helping and blessing. But there will have to be rule with a rod of iron at first. And he who overcomes will be part of that. Chapter 3, verse 21 Revelation 3, verse 21, to him who overcomes. Again, we've got to grow. We've got to walk with God in the right way. We've got to have Christ living his life in us. I will grant to sit with me on my throne, you see, a throne of rulership, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. So we will be given that. And then over in chapter 5, Revelation 5 and verse 9, it talks about the song of the saints, that they're going to sing a song of praise, and they sang a new song saying, You, talking about Christ, are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, 
For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Yes, the precious blood of Christ is a wonderful part of the gospel, but that's just the starting point. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us, when God says he calls those things which be not as though they were, as though it's already happened. Back in, it says, Romans chapter 4, verse 17 tells us that. God says to Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham could have been a smart aleck and looked around and says, where are all the other nations? Well, they didn't happen for many, many years. But God did do that because he said, I have done it and nothing can stop it. So God has made us to be these rulers and uh, that's what he's going to do and have made us kings and priests to our God and we, the saints, shall reign not up in heaven but on the earth. Very clear. That's our job. That's our calling. God could have called us later on for personal salvation but he didn't do that. He called us now so we could do the work of God, get this message out to the whole world of the good news, not bad news, but good news of a wonderful government that's going to come and wipe away all tears and help people and bless them and save them from all kinds of troubles and set up the government of God. We're called to preach that message. And we're also called, of course, to get ready ourselves to let Christ live his life within us and walk with God and walk with Christ and build the kind of character that God can use to help rule this earth, to assess Christ as those kings and priests under Christ in a few years over various cities and nations, bringing real peace on this earth in a way it's never experienced before. So we want to realize that's why we're here. And so, brethren, this is very, very important to understand. Turn back to Revelation chapter 20 now, if you would. Revelation chapter 20. And here in verse 1, it describes an angel coming down from heaven. Just skim these first few verses, having the key to the bottom of his pit. He grabs Satan, binds him a thousand years, sets a, and puts him into the bottom of his pit, shuts him up, and sets a seal on him so that he, Satan, should deceive the nations no more for a thousand years. When our job begins as saints and kings and rulers, we will have the advantage, a wonderful advantage, that Satan won't be here to confuse the people, you see, during that thousand-year time. And they will be willing to listen. Then it tells about the saints who had to be beheaded and martyred. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. That's an interpolated thought. This is the first resurrection, which he's been talking about. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. We are blessed and holy if we can make it. And we've got to do our part if we're overcomers. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So that's our opportunity. And brethren, we need to really appreciate that because that's a wonderful thing. That is our calling. That's why we're called now, as I say. It's an opportunity to bring joy and prosperity and happiness and peace and security to literally billions of people, assisting Christ in doing that. It's real. 
And so it's getting very close as you see these terrible things in the world happening. I know they're unpleasant, and may we talk about them too much because it's exciting. In a sense, you see these things happening. Jesus said, lift up your heads for your redemption is near. <laughs> it has to get darkest just before the dawn. But if we can look beyond the darkness and see that magnificent dawn, we can realize what's about to happen. It's very real. So my sermon today is about you need to prepare to rule. Prepare to rule. Our job is real, and you really need to be preparing for that in a very specific way. One key to preparing, brethren, and to knowing how to prepare is to consider who is going to be the direct ruler over the 12 tribes of Israel in tomorrow's world, under Jesus Christ, of course, but the one directly ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, most of you know the answer to that. It's King David. How did King David prepare? Let's first see some of the items about him doing that job. Turn back to Ezekiel, if you would. I need to prove this to some of you who may be new, but I try not to repeat too much of this. Ezekiel chapter 34, if you turn back there. He's been talking about Israel all the way through, the shepherds of Israel, and what's going to happen at the time of the end. If you look at the whole context, he says in verse 22, Ezekiel 34, verse 22, Therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. You see, we've been a prey, the other nations are already ganging up on us. I think most of you know that this coming Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, the 16th, the BRIC nations, as they call them, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, B-R-I-C, the BRIC nations are having a meeting. And their main purpose is to get together and help work out the beginnings of another currency so they can bypass the dollar and bring us down. Europe is going to do that, but China and Russia and India and uh, Brazil, those peoples constitute one half of the entire population of this planet. That's a lot of folks. And now they're some of the most powerful nations. Brazil is the wealthiest and most powerful nation in South America. Russia has made a big comeback because of their oil and their dictator, of course, one of those dictators I talked about, Putin, who's sitting actually controlling things. And China, of course, has a kind of an oligarchy, a kind of a multi-dictatorship under the various key leaders at the top. And then India, which is a democracy, ostensibly, but nevertheless joining with these other nations in these activities to bring us down. They have a lot of wealth and a lot of power. The Chinese have more reserves in their, uh, their treasury than any other nation on earth. In that sense, they are the wealthiest nation on earth. They have far more American dollars that they've bought government bonds and, and uh, various instruments of American investment than all the other nations put together almost. It's huge. So he says there won't be a prey. We won't be a prey anymore. I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them. This is when Christ comes. Who is that? He shall feed them. My servant David. David, was this back when David was living? No, this book was written about 400 years after David died. This is talking about Christ coming and David being resurrected from the dead. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the eternal, will be their God 
and my servant David shall be a prince among them. And I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause the wild beasts of the land to cease. And then he goes showing the blessings that will take place at that time. Like Isaiah 11 describes the time when Christ comes and the wild beast nature will be taken away. And he says in verse 26, I'll cause showers to come down in their season and there shall be showers of blessings. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe. Under our government, our government, the government of Christ was all of us assisting. They'll be safe in their land and they shall know that I, the ever-living one, that I am the ever-living one when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. But God will deliver us and bring peace and a peaceful nature of the animals and the rain in due season and Christ, uh, David will be the king over all Israel. Now turn to chapter 37 here, if you would, Ezekiel 37, and beginning in verse 21. Ezekiel 37, verse 21. Then they shall say to them, and of course this is when Christ comes back, as you'll see, thus says the Eternal, Surely I will take the children of Israel, that's all the British descended and American peoples and democratic peoples of northwestern Europe, many of them, from among the nations, wherever they've gone, and gather them from every side, bring them back from all over the world, bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations. You see, they became Judah and Israel. And for about 200 years, you find the Jews fighting against Israel and Israel fighting against the Jews. Well, you won't hear that preached, you know, in the mainstream churches. They think Israel means Jew and Jew means Israel and we're all the same. Well, all the Jews are Israelites, but all the Israelites are not Jews. All North Carolinians are Americans, but not all Americans are North Carolinians, if you get the idea. We're one state and Judah was one part of the 12 tribes of Israel, only one part. And the Bible shows that very clearly. They're going to be brought together. We will know that the Jews are not just cousins, they're our brothers. And we'll know that the British, we Americans, are not just cousins, they are our brothers, even in a special way, our, our close brothers from the same mother. No longer shall be divided ever again, and they'll no longer defile themselves with their idols and sins, and they'll be my people and I will be their God. Verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them again. And they shall all have one shepherd. They'll walk in my judgments, notice, and observe my statutes. Oh, here's something David did. When David comes back, he's going to have to be administering God's statutes and God's judgments. Then they shall dwell in the land that I've given Jacob. They'll dwell there and their children forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. So David will be here on this earth in the resurrection from the dead, and he will be administering a government based on God's laws and God's statutes and God's governments. How did David prepare? Well, we know when he was a shepherd boy, he looked up to the heavens, as you read in Psalm 8, perhaps hundreds of times out there alone under the stars, and thought about how great God is, and what is man that thou art mindful of him, and had that relation with the Creator. But specifically, notice what David did. Turn now to Psalm 119, brethren. Psalm 119. This is the longest chapter in the Bible. 
so you won't read this one very often, but you should read the whole thing once in a while. I read it a couple of times recently, because since my stroke, I've taken more time to read the Bible, which I should have been doing all along, and I never quit reading it. don't want you to give that idea, but I've learned what is really important. And you've got to have your walk with God and really walk with God more and more. All of us have got to do that. But anyway, uh, back in Psalm 119, verse 1, here's a Psalm of David, which the scholars recognize it is. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the eternal. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with a whole heart. That's something I mentioned in my last sermon. You have to learn to seek God. God isn't always just right there unless you take the time to drink into this book and think about it. Try to honestly inculcate it into your life. Pray to God on your knees. Say, Father, help me. Teach me. Give me understanding. Lead me in your way. So seek Him with your whole heart, He says. And they also do no iniquity, as He goes on here. And uh, you have commanded us to keep your precepts, God's teachings, diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Oh, here they are, God's statutes. Then I would not be ashamed. When I look into all your commandments, I will praise you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Verse 8. Oh, do, oh, do not forsake me utterly. By the way... As you know, this New King James Version, which is the one I'm reading from, Mr. Armstrong approved as the main version for our editorial department and our ministry way back several years before he died. And the other versions sometimes will have be slightly more accurate in certain ways. It's not that they're always wrong, but 90% of the time, the New King James is better. You look back, for instance, at Genesis chapter 26, and it says, God blessed Abraham you know, because he kept God's commandments, his statutes, his laws, whatever. And then you read the New International Version or the Phillips Translation or these other kind of free-flowing, they're not really translations, but they'll say, well, Abraham kept God's, God's teachings in his ways or something. <laughs> they kind of muddy it up. What, do you, what teachings? What ways? They don't say. There are specific Hebrew words that mean commandments. There are specific Hebrew words that mean statutes. And there are specific commandments and there are specific statutes. And all the way through, the New Kings is much more, New King James is much more accurate on those things. Anyway, I want you to realize that. Now going ahead in Psalm 119, notice verse 23. He says, Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. What was David doing? He was meditating, thinking about God's statutes. Your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Uh, revive me according to your word. I've declared uh, my ways and you've answered me. Teach me your statutes, he says again. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts in heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove from me the way of lying and so on. But over and over, verse 33, Teach me, O Eternal, the way of your statutes. Verse 33, And I shall keep it to the end. So we've got to learn God's ways, but specific ways, including His statutes and His judgments. We know that Christ came along to magnify the law, 
And he did. Some of the statutes we don't have to observe just every letter, but the principle definitely has to be observed of every single one of the statutes. For instance, the statutes included circumcision when you look it up, and the New Testament tells us that we do not all have to circumcise our baby boys or all men uh, regardless. It's a good health practice, by the way, very good, as I've explained, but it's not a spiritual commandment of God. But on the other hand, we know the command in the New Testament is that you have to be spiritually circumcised. And so the principle carries on. It is a good health law and frankly ought to be done anyway. The statutes included God's holy days. But the holy days are to carry right on. But the way the holy days are observed is somewhat different. And you don't have to go out on the Feast of Tabernacles and find some leafy things and live under a under a kind of a hut somewhere with leaves or something and uh, our feast site up in Wisconsin or whatever. <laughs> you see what I mean? God guides us to do that, but we keep those days and we learn the spiritual meaning of those days. Many of those things are modified. The Passover, we do not keep the, the uh, and Jesus made it clear, the lamb and the bitter herbs, we keep the unleavened bread and red wine symbolizing Christ's broken body and his shed blood. But the Passover, that statute continues right on. The statutes are lasting. They reveal the mind of God. They spelled out the commandments in a kind of a letter of the law way, which gives us great insight because this book is the revelation of the mind of God. And they show how God thinks as you read those things. Then we go on here to Exodus, if you would, Exodus chapter 18 at this point. In Exodus chapter 18, a very famous passage, of course, is when we find the government of God first being introduced under righteous uh, Abel and others like Noah and Abraham, there wasn't a whole kingdom. There wasn't a government, just an extended family for some of them. That was it. Now they had a whole nation together. And so it was. Moses was their judge. He was their king, kind of a combination king and patriarch. And verse 13, and so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning to evening. In other words, they just, he, he had so many wanted to say, what about this? And I've got a problem with Jones. And old George Smith's cow got over and ate all my vegetables. And what we're going to do about this? And kept on and on and just wore him out. And when they have a difficulty, they come to me, verse 16, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God. Notice, the statutes of God and His laws. So Moses' father-in-law was sent there, obviously by God, the way the story reads. God gave him wisdom. He said, the thing you do is not good. You're trying to do all of it yourself. Both you and these people are going to wear out. Listen, and I'll give you counsel. You, he says, verse 20, teach them the statutes. Yes, the leaders should teach the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. But, also, moreover, and you have to do that, and we have to do that in the work today, and we have to, will have to learn to do that, you ladies as well, in tomorrow's world. Don't try to do it all yourself. Give others an opportunity. Delegate. Dr. Winnell is doing a great job directing the churches here worldwide. I can't do all that. 
Some of you know I used to call Sid Hegbold. He was a science teacher for years, and he and his wife were dear friends. And we were very close. And I'd say, my friend Sid Hegbold, and he still is. I love him. But as he got older, he got kind of fussy. Some older men get fussy. Obviously, I don't do that, <coughs> unless you talk to my wife. <laughs> but Sid Hegbold got fussy. And the last four or five times I saw him, he would bawl me out every time. I never retaliated. I knew he was just getting old. And he said, well, Mr. Meredith, he says, I wish you'd straighten out all this administrative stuff. And you've got all these people out here. And he says, everything was better when you ran the churches yourself. And I said, well, Sid, if I tried to run the churches now, I would have a heart attack. I would not be here. I can't do all that. And, uh, you know, so we have Mr. Crockett running the business area and Mr. Winnell running the uh, churches and Mr. Ames uh, wonderfully running the media and so on. And uh, then we have Mr. Apartin as our, our senior advisor uh, in many ways in the, on the team. And we have wonderful young men coming along helping, such as Mr. Rod McNair, who's been giving the announcements here and uh, is backing up Dr. Monale and Mr. Apartin and uh, Mr. O'Gwen and other young men coming along all over the world as far as that's concerned. We're very grateful for that. Because if each one of us tried to do everything, if Dr. O'Neill tried to run the churches and he had no pastors down in Perth, Australia, and Sydney and, and Melbourne, those churches would come apart. You've got to have someone else doing it. You've got to delegate, delegate. So he told him that, and uh, you shall select. No voting in God's kingdom. You, you just look in vain. It's definitely, absolutely, by appointment every time. You shall select from all the people able men. And at that time, and in this time too, men were to be the leaders. And tomorrow's world will not be men or women, but women are assisting. And often a woman will really help her husband if he has her as one of his chief advisors and back him up and help him and give him balance. But able men such as fear God, and brethren, that's a tremendous aspect that we all have to come to understand. I have found through the years that some of our even leading men did not really fear God. You thought they did, but when it came right down to it, they were not in awe of God or in awe of this book. But if Mr. Armstrong made some mistake or they thought he was buying too many objects of art or spending too much on the airplane or the, or the house of God, they would start chipping away and undermining him and turning away as though they were in charge and they did not have the fear of God. Otherwise, they would have understood the office he was in. Able men such as fear God, men of truth. We've got to tell the truth and act on the truth and live by the truth and make decisions based on the truth. Hating covetousness. Don't let people buy you off. We have a practice which goes clear back to worldwide where our ministers are not to take money. If someone gives us some, you know, some of Mrs. Uh, Murray, always trying to call her by her but gives me some onions or, or cucumbers, I'll take that. But if she sent me $100, I'd have to give it back. And that's what we've always tried to do. You're not to try to let anyone buy you off by helping. A number of you have given me vegetables or give my wife little things like that. But don't let yourself be bought off if you're going to be a ruler. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, and rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. You see, there is a government structure. 
a governmental structure in God's government. And this is put there right here in this early part of the Bible as an example. Later on, I don't have time for that now. I've done it before, but you turn later and you see that King David did the same thing. And other kings did the same thing. It was what God wanted and will do in tomorrow's world. So let them judge every little matter, but the great matters they'll bring to you. So Moses did that and worked out well. So these were to be men of character that were chosen to do that kind of job. But Moses was to teach the statutes, the statutes and the laws. And we need to understand that. So we turn now to Proverbs. Another key important way that you need to prepare to rule is to learn not only God's statutes in general, which we'll come back to by the way later, but you've learned to have wisdom in how you apply the statutes and how you apply the judgments and how you apply everything. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. The whole book of Proverbs is about wisdom, as you know, and I certainly won't have time to read all of it, although it'd be nice, (laughs) but we don't have time for that. Proverbs 2 and beginning in verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom. He just constantly talks about wisdom all the way through Proverbs and apply your heart to understanding. He talks about wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Yes, if you cry out for discernment. Brethren, we need to cry out for discernment and wisdom and understanding. And lift up your voice for understanding and seek for her a silver and hidden treasure. Then you will understand the fear, the awe of God. You'll come to understand that if you have real wisdom and find the knowledge of God. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. For the eternal gives wisdom and from his mouth comes understanding. So that's very, very important to learn those things. Very important. It's vital to seek Wisdom. Read the book of Proverbs often and read other things that have to do with wisdom. Through my ministry, Mr. Armstrong encourages us to do this, but I have read many books about wisdom, the book of Proverbs, hundreds of times. But also I have read other books, such as the autobiography of Bernard Baruch, who was a multimillionaire. He would have been a billionaire in today's money. And he was the, uh, an advisor to seven different U.S. presidents and the greatest personal American friend, apart from the government, of Sir Winston Churchill. And on Churchill's last visit to the United States, his last couple nights were spent at Bernard Baruch's home uh, on Long Island. Very brilliant man, great wisdom. And you go through his experiences and you learn certain principles that way of wisdom by reading about Bernard Baruch, reading about Winston Churchill, reading about Teddy Roosevelt. I used to wonder why Teddy Roosevelt was Mr. Herbert Armstrong's favorite uh, president. I sort of knew in a way, but I, I somehow I never started reading about him until the last 10 or 15 years, and then it hit me pretty hard. What a dramatic personality, but also a great deal of wisdom and uh, capability that, that he uh, exemplified. So seek wisdom and understanding and knowledge. As you think about it, get all the facts. When you're trying to make a decision, brethren, get all the facts, weigh them. Think about the immediate effect. How is this decision going to come out tomorrow? How is it going to look six months from now? 
How's it going to look 10 years from now? You want to think of all that. How's it going to affect these people? But how's it going to affect the other side? How's it going to affect their relatives and friends? You know, what's the whole effect? And then think, what does God want? Study the Bible and see how the principles of God apply in that way. Get all the facts, weigh them, apply God's statutes and ways to how you would decide the matter so you would have the mind of God to the extent you're able as you make a decision. Uh, in Proverbs 11, verse 14, I don't have time to expound all the Proverbs today, but this is one that we often mention, and you've got it's mentioned five or six times through Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14 is one place. Proverbs 11, 14, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Don't just get one person's opinion. Get the opinion of several capable men and women. I know we used to uh, uh, talk, we ministers and teachers in Ambassador College, how some of the kids, if they were, if John is dating Mary and he wants to date her no matter what, even though maybe she was too young or he was dating her too much in her freshman year or whatever, uh, he would try to, they called it minister shopping. They would try to find a minister who would give them the answer they wanted. You see, <laughs> you're, that's not getting multitude to counsel. Or sometimes they didn't go to any minister. They would just go to their friends and they would find some friends to agree with them and that was their way of getting counsel. No, that's not the way to go. If you're in the church, you'd better try to get someone who is in the church, who has wisdom. And if it's a big spiritual problem, you certainly ought to include especially ministers who have wisdom and experience and balance and will try to be objective not your buddy in the ministry, but someone who will really be objective. So get multitude of counsel. Counsel isn't just talking. It's thoughtful advice after the person hears the whole situation. Get multitude of counsel. Then you can learn to be the right kind of a leader, the right kind of a future king, the right kind of a judge over your city or your nation in tomorrow's world. So get multitude of counsel and then learn to study God's statutes that give us the principles of His law as spelled out in more detail. Turn to Leviticus chapter 18 now, brethren, and let's get into some of that. I, I'm going to be skimming here a little bit. I see the time. I knew this would go real fast, and but I want to give you some of these things just so you really understand what I'm talking about. Turn to uh, Leviticus now. Chapter 18, Leviticus 18 and beginning in verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel, God told Moses, and say to them, I am the eternal your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, you shall not do. Well, according to the land, the ways of the land of America or Canada or Britain, we should not do. We're not necessarily to follow them. They're carnal. Some of them mean well, but they don't know God's ways. God has not called them yet. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances and walk in them. I am the ever-living one. You shall therefore keep my statutes. Verse 5. Statutes he keeps coming back to, which is specific. And my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. So you see, you've got to study these statutes. None of you shall approach to anyone who is near of kin to uncover his nakedness. And that's obviously for sexual purposes. You're not to uncover the nakedness of your father, your mother, 
uh, your father's wife, if you have a stepmother, your sister, you see various forms of incest and all these other things. He says, here's how not to do it, not to do it. You think, well, that's nasty. No, that's not nasty. He was dealing with the carnal nation. They had to have it spelled out in the letter. But people are doing all that today. They supposedly know all these things. No, they don't. They're even worse than they were back there, I think. And so it goes on to tell you how to cleave to your wife and not commit fornication or adultery or incest or anything else. And certainly no homosexuality. Verse uh, 18, Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister. You're not to marry two sisters because they get, especially if a woman, a man was allowed to have more than one wife back at that time, these sisters would really get to fighting each other. Also, you're not to reproach a woman as long as she is in her customary impurity. Well, they had to have that spelled out when she was in menstruation. And it says, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife. You shall not commit adultery, but God spells it out here in a different way. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, that kind of horrible child sacrifice to gods, pagan gods, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Eternal. And brethren, one thing we often don't think about, the world talks about it, I mean, righteousness, and they have very little understanding. To them, if you talk to the normal carnal persons, well, I try to be good and, 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 uh, and follow the golden rule. Or I try to be good and love my neighbor. Oh, really? Well, that's fine. But how do they be good? Well, they don't know how to be good because they don't understand the Bible. But what they do, they try to be nice to those around them that are their friends, you see, in a limited way. But if they turned about not to be their friend or their friend beats them out of a business deal, then they may try to get him back or yell at him or kill him or hate him forever or whatever. But they leave out the first and great commandment, which is to love the ever-living one, your God, with all your heart and strength and soul and might, to love that great God with all of your being. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if you don't come to know that invisible God as your God and as your Father, then you will not be able to love your neighbor as yourself. You will not be able to keep the last six commandments, you see. You've got to love God first. And then you will get the help to know how to and to have the strength to love your neighbor as yourself in the way God wants. He says down in verse 22, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. No, God made woman and man for one another. We all know that. And we're supposed to be one in marriage. And that's wonderful. That's the way we have a family. We have children. We're made for each other. But to man, to marry, supposedly marry another man, one farmer up here in Pennsylvania, this was a few years ago, but he, they were starting something, and he was so mad about that, he got, uh, he got a horse or a mule and brought the animal in before the justice of the peace and, and had him try to perform a wedding where he was going to marry his mule. <laughs> and uh, he just he got a justice of the peace to go along with this and got a photographer, I guess, to make fun of how ridiculous it is for two men to think they're going to marry each other. It is an abomination. Not just a normal sin, but an abomination. Nor should you defile yourself with any beast. You see, bestiality. You say, well, no one would ever have to be told that. Yes, they do. There have been people in that all kind of practice all down through time. And I understand in reading they're getting back to it again. Don't do that. It's a perversion. 
Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled which I'm casting out before you. In chapter 19, he tells him you're to be holy. And verse 3, every one of you shall revere his father and his mother. All right? You're to have a deep, powerful sense of respect for your father and mother. And spells that out. And not any idolatry. And he says in verse 9, when you reap the harvest, leave a little bit in the corner so the poor can take care of it. They, they had that right at that time to take the leavings. And you're to think of the poor. He has that all the way through his statutes. You shall not steal, verse 11, nor deal falsely. Don't try to trick each other. The government is trying to trick us. They're saying, well, we're going to give you all these benefits, but then they quietly raise the taxes over here and over there, and you're not to do that. Don't do that. Don't lie to one another or deal falsely. You shall not swear by my name falsely. You see, you're to honor God's name. That's the first thing, everything God stands for. You shall not defraud your neighbor. Don't take advantage of your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired, you're not just keep overnight. They used to pay day by day. Now, if our practice is to pay once every week or every two weeks, that's fine if that's what's expected. But you're not to keep back the wages. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear God. In other words, you're to recognize that this man or woman who's deaf or blind is a human being made in the image of God. Don't take advantage of this person made in God's image. I am the Lord. Reminding them who he is, giving this instruction. You shall do no injustice in judgment, nor shall you be partial to the poor. Some governments say, we'll take away from the rich and give to the poor. And God says, that's wrong too. You're to help the poor, but you're not to be partial to them if a judgment comes along. Nor honor the person of the mighty. Just because they're important, don't let them off easy and try to give them favoritism. You're not to play favorites. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer. Don't do that. You're not to hate your brother in your heart. If you go around with resentment against others, what are you doing? You brood over something. You say, well, I don't like so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And what does that do? Does that hurt that other person? Probably not. It hurts you. You're seething and mad about it. And you can get high blood pressure or you can get a heart attack. Or you could get stomach ulcers, but it doesn't hurt the other person. You're not to do that. It's a spirit of murder. If you carry it on long enough, it'll make you want to kill the other person. So you're not to have that attitude. Don't hate your brother. Rebuke your brother. They've done something wrong. Go to your brother, as it tells us in Matthew 18, verse 15. And do not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance. Don't say, I'll get even. You see... God spells these things out right back in the Old Testament. Nor bear any grudges against the children of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the ever-living one. There it is. Leviticus 19.18. That's where the golden rule began. <laughs> Way back in Leviticus, Christ was simply quoting from what he had inspired. He was the God of the Old Testament. But he inspired this to be given by Moses. Love your neighbor as yourself. You shall keep my statutes. Don't mix your livestock. Don't mix different kinds of garments together and water down the quality. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who's betrothed, there shall be scourging. Uh, but if they've each participated, there shall not be put to death. 
And he tells various aspects of how to deal with fornicators here. And when you come into the land, why, then you shall count the fruit. And after three years, then you may eat it, or you're to eat it in the fourth year. The fourth year, no one was to be holy, and in the fifth year may eat it. You shall not, verse 26, eat anything with blood. Well, lots of people, they love blood sausage and this and that, but it's very hard on you, so don't do that. And you shall not practice divination or soothsaying. And you're not to make cuttings in your flesh for the dead or tattoo or any marks on your on you. You're not to have all these uh, tattoos and stuff like young people do today. It defiles their body. God says, don't do that. Do not prostitute your daughter. And again, that's done all through parts of Asia and the Middle East. They'll sell their young women into slavery and sexual bondage. Sometimes even when the little kid is just 10 or 12 years old, it's pitiful. That's going on by the thousands all over the world. Don't do that. You shall keep my Sabbaths, reverence my sanctuary, give no regard to mediums or familiar spirits. Yet all these businessmen out here consulting their horoscopes and going to fortune tellers, God makes it plain. Don't do that. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the eternal. So you should honor those guys like me who are old (laughs) and honor Mr. Parting especially. I think he's the oldest one among us. I had a young man in the restroom just a while ago but uh, during the uh, song whatever and uh, he was 10 years old. I should have got his first name, a young blonde-headed guy. I'll have to come up and tell me who you are, young man. But he literally opened the door for me as I came in the restroom. And then as I came to the drinking fountain, he ran ahead of me and turned on the hot water for me and then opened the door to help me get out. Just I didn't ask for anything. He was just, I asked him how old he was, but he really had a very wonderful attitude to honor uh, the old man. <laughs> I don't like to think of myself as an old man because up until my stroke, I was going to the Y and running every night and all that. But anyway, the wonderful attitude. And if a stranger sojourns among with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. But the stranger who dwells among you shall be as one born among you. And so if we have uh, Gentiles or people from another country among us, you're to treat them well. You shall love him as yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And if they're in the land, you're to love him as yourself and not mistreat him. Uh, And we must not do that. For you are strangers of the land of Egypt. I am the eternal, your God. You shall do no injustice in judgment and measurement, you know, cheating. Verse 27, Therefore you shall observe all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. I am the ever-living one. So that's very important that we understand all these things. And God wants us to, and to really get the picture. Uh, I want to, uh, back here in 11 to 19. No. No, in Deuteronomy now. Turn to Deuteronomy, brethren, at this point, and chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. And let's uh, begin here in verse 16. Three times a year all the males were to appear and keep the feast of unleavened bread. 
the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, and each to give as he is able. Verse 18, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the turn your God gives you, according to all your tribes. And they shall judge the people with just judgment. He keeps saying the judge has to be fair. And when we're kings in tomorrow's world, God demands that we be fair, that we get all the facts. We are not partial. We are not bought off. We control our temper. We try to see the big picture. We get multitude of counsel. We will be able to get counsel directly from Christ himself if we have to at that time, and certainly from King David. Then he goes on. Uh, You shall not pervert justice, verse 19. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. Verse 20, you shall follow what is altogether just, altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land. So he tells them how to be fair in all these things. And then in chapter uh, 19 over here, if you would turn, Deuteronomy chapter 19, and notice in verse... uh, 11, if anyone hates his neighbor and deliberately waits and kills him, then the elders are to send for him and deliver him to the hand of the avenger of blood, and you're to execute him. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark. Now, we don't kill people today, but that was the penalty was death, and it is death today too, except God executes the death penalty. But you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark. That's very important. Don't try to cheat and things like that. Verse 15 is the principle I'm coming to. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be established. If a false witness rises up against a man to testify against him, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the eternal, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges, you see, the leaders, the judges, the kings, or whatever, shall make diligent inquiry. We've got to be diligent to get all the facts if something is really controversial and serious. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. Now, you can't kill him today. God does not allow us to execute the death penalty. But if he's trying to get his brother put out of the church, then perhaps that should be happen to him because he was trying to do that to this other man. So shall you put away evil persons from among you, and those who remain shall hear and fear. There is to be an awe of the government of God and God's overall judging, you see, in that way. And, of course, we need to really understand that. Back in Luke 19... Luke 19, I'm going to just mainly refer to this because we've used it so much. But remember in Luke 19, get to the New Testament again, verse 11. As Jesus had given this parable, he spoke another parable because they thought that the kingdom of God would immediately appear. So he describes the nobleman going to a far country and coming back with his kingdom. Obviously Christ going to heaven and coming back. And when he returned, he asked these men to show what they had gained by the money he'd given them, you see, giving us the talents and the strengths and opportunities we have by analogy. How much every man had gained by trading. Verse 16, And the first came saying, Master, your mina, that was a measure of money, by the way, your 
your thousand dollars or whatever has earned ten thousand. And he said, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. And remember, brethren, whatever we do in this life is very little compared to what we're going to do later on. You are faithful, though. You have to be faithful in little. Have authority over ten cities. What's the reward? Always ruling on this earth, you see. Being a ruler in the government of God, you are called to be a future ruler. You ladies were called to be a future king, a future ruler. And then the second came, Master, your mina has gained five minas, and he was rewarded proportionally to how much he overcome, overcame. Your mina has gained five minas. Likewise, he said, you also be over five cities. So it's obviously a governmental responsibility. That's why we're here. That's why we are called now. We're going to have a wonderful opportunity in a few years if we could study these statutes. And brethren, we do need to study the statutes of God. And I would like to give you a reference if you write it down, if you're taking notes. I've looked this up fairly carefully. And with a very few exceptions, the statutes of God are listed here. The statutes of God are listed in Exodus chapter 20 through chapter 24. And they're listed in Leviticus chapter 16 uh, through 27. The first 15 chapters don't talk much about the statutes. Then they're listed in Numbers chapters 18 to 19 and Numbers chapters 27 to 30 and then 35 and 36. It's kind of scattered through Numbers And then the statutes are listed in Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 28. The whole middle part of the book of Deuteronomy is the most thorough exposition. Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 28 give you the statutes of God. As you study those statutes and laws and ordinances, you know, you know the ordinances or sacrifices and washings are replaced by the sacrifice of Christ. The washings are replaced by the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. And we do not carry out the administration of death. God does do that. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will put these people to death if they never repent. But we are not to do that today. Or give them so many lashes or whatever. But the principle is there. Those laws reveal the mind of God for a carnal nation. They can help you and me prepare to rule. So we need to understand, but we're going to have an opportunity to really straighten out this world and, and do an awful lot of good. It's going to be exciting. Notice back here in the next to the last Psalm, Psalm chapter 149, Psalm 149 and verse 5. Let the saints be joyful in glory. We're to be very happy with this opportunity. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. We're going to say to the Hitlers and Idi Amin's and these terrible dictators, you know, back off or literally put them in chains, or execute them, depending on how Christ guides us in each situation. We're going to stop them in a big hurry. There'll be no more of that horrible oppression for whole nations. And as I've said, there an article, not an article, but a, well, I've read it in articles too, but they had this whole 
TV special and narrated by a woman, which is better because it involved rape. But she was showing how these in Nigeria, they had this whole practice of literally using rape as a weapon of war, just raping every woman in the village and little girls clear down to six or eight years old, mutilating their bodies for life. All this is going on all over this earth in a very damnable way. And God hates it. And he's going to stop it. And we're going to have the chance to stop it. To execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord, of course, is the Hebrew word hallelujah. So that's what God says. We're going to have that opportunity. It's a wonderful opportunity that we have to help make things better in a very real way on this earth. Not nicey nice thoughts of going off to heaven with nothing to do, but assisting Jesus Christ, assisting King David, and setting up a whole government on this earth. Now notice in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, most of you know that chapter 30, verses 4 to 9, talks about the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, a time so great there is none like it, He'll be saved out of it, and they'll serve the Lord. And David, their king, he will raise up for them. Again, King David, this is in Jeremiah 30. And then in chapter 31, it continues right on. It says, at the same time, oh, the last verse of chapter 30 says, in the latter days you will consider it. It's talking about our time. And the story flow goes right on, of course, into the next chapter. At the same time, the latter days, says the ever-living I will be the God of all the families of Israel. America, Britain, the Jewish people, the democracies of Northwestern Europe, all of us. And they shall be my people. Thus says the Eternal, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. They're going to be given forgiveness and blessing. Israel, when I went to give him rest, the Eternal has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. God is going to love them and rebuild our cities and rebuild our civilization the right way this time. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances. There will be wonderful processions, marvelous choirs and singing groups and instrumental groups and dancing and laughter. And, that, and those of you who rejoice, you shall plant vines. Planters shall plant, and they'll drink good wine, no doubt. There shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise, let us go up to Zion. They won't have to go up to battle, but they'll go up to worship the Creator. For thus says the eternal, verse 7, With gladness, sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the nations, Give praise, O eternal, save your people. The remnant of Israel, the last generation of Israel that's gone through this horrible captivity. Save them. Behold, I'll bring them from the north country. You see, from north of Jerusalem is always the geographical point of reference. Bring them what's north of Jerusalem. Well, of course, is uh, uh, Europe. And gather them from the ends of the earth. They're scattered everywhere. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, a great throng. They'll come with weeping and supplications. They'll be so sorry. They'll say, oh, we wish we'd listened. We wish we'd listened when we had a chance. But I'll cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, for I'm a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim was not God's firstborn physically, but he is spiritually in the sense of rulership, and he's bringing them back from their captivity. And he says in verse 12, Therefore they shall come and sing 
They're going to sing and rejoice in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the eternal for wheat and new wine and oil, young of the flock and herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. No more sorrow. Why? Because Christ will be here. King David will be ruling. But hopefully many of you in this room will be kings and priests in a soon-coming government set up on this earth to bring the kind of peace and prosperity. Christ could be everywhere at once, I suppose, but in a personal sense, He works through you and through me and will do that in doing this job and teaching these people God's ways. But we've got to live those ways today and we've got to study the Bible, study these commandments, study these statutes so we understand the reality of this and how the government of God is to operate. Turn to verse 16. Thus says the Eternal, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Eternal, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Verse 17, There is hope in your future, says the Eternal, that your children shall come back to their own border. Brethren, there will be tremendous hope and tremendous rejoicing and finally tears of joy when Christ brings people back and they have the opportunity to have you not say, well, what's wrong with you? And you have some little problem. They're going to have all kinds of problems. But you love them. You embrace them physically, emotionally, every other way you can. You try to teach them, help them, build them, encourage them, and guide them in the right way. This is our opportunity to bring absolute happiness and joy. This is why you and I were called now and brethren, this is why we urgently need to really prepare, not just be sentimental, but to study these things and think about that kind of government and think about these things as this world comes crashing down. We're going to help straighten it out. We're going to help make a difference. We're going to be there. We want to be there. Let's get ready. We want to think about it in that way. It's very real. So this is why we need to urgently prepare to be the kings and priests that God wants us to be. And that will give our lives deep meaning and a deep sense of purpose and hopefully a deep sense of joy. So let's go all out to prepare now to be kings and priests in the coming kingdom, the government of God to be set up on this earth.